Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Yes, Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number one, history in the making. I am Shane Ryan, and I want to thank you so much for listening. Okay, first questions first. What is Apocalypse Sports Radio? Look, I know explainers are boring, so I'm going to try to do this one in 90 seconds or less. I'm going to start the clock. I don't know if you can hear it. I'm going to start it now. Okay, Apocalypse Sports Radio. Two podcast episodes each week. The first of which, like this one, will be full of different short segments, opinions. It's going to be fast, quick hitting. It's going to be fun, almost like a variety show. The second each week, which is going to come out later this week, will feature a longer interview with a guest involved in the sports world. Could be a journalist. This week it actually will be Tim Layden from NBC Sports. Very excited about that. Could be an athlete. We'll see what happens. Those interviews and those episodes are going to be free, while the ones like this, even though this week is free, will go under the Apocalypse Sports Network paywall. What's that? Another great question. It's a new project I've started that includes two podcasts per week, as well as the Apocalypse Sports Dispatch. That's a daily blog I'll be writing each morning on a variety of sports topics. Could be funny, it could be serious, it could be furious. It'll probably hit a lot of other emotions too, depending on the day and depending on my mood. But hopefully it'll always be entertaining and a welcome addition to your day and your entertainment diet. Where are we? Oh my God, almost a minute. I have to hurry. So as I said, one podcast episode each week will be free and one morning blog, but the rest will be paywalled. So how much is it? You're probably thinking, Shane, come on, content like this. It's so good. It must be what? Nine, ten thousand $10,000 a day. No, $3 a month, $36 a year. How reasonable is that? You could pay me $3,600 upfront and be covered for 100 years. And I hate to say it, but most of us probably aren't going to live that long. So I would love if you would support me on Patreon. You can find it at apocalypsesports.net. Yes, .net, the .com is a gun store in Louisiana, so they took that one. Or patreon.com slash apocalypsesports. And if you don't do that, if you opt not to, that's okay. I hope you dig the free content. Stop. 101 seconds. I missed my deadline. Oh, well. All right, let's move on, shall we? As I said, each episode like this is going to have a lot of different segments. And to go between those segments, of course, we need a segment break. So I want to play that sound effect for you right now so you know what to expect. Segment break! Now, that was just a test of the segment break system. We are not actually in a new segment. But the next time you hear it, we will be. It'll be the real thing. And let's get there right now because I want to start each of these episodes with a trivia question. Segment break. All right, welcome to Apocalypse Sports Trivia. That is an actual league that people participate in. There are now 120 people, believe it or not, in Apocalypse Sports Trivia. If you are interested in participating, 
Let me know, uh, and you can challenge some very, very smart people. People much smarter than me, by the way. All right, so each day I'm going to ask one question on these episodes. If you know the answer, uh, send it to me at Shane Ryan here on Twitter, and I will give you recognition next time. Don't look it up. I'm not going to police you, but you do have to look yourself in the mirror, so let's be honest on this one. All right, today's trivia question. In the 1904 Summer Olympic Games in St. Louis, a retired cricket professional named George Lyon, won a gold medal as one of just three Canadians competing in an event that included 71 Americans. No other nations participated. Who was the next man to win an Olympic gold medal in Lyon's event? All right, I really like that question. So yeah, if you know it, uh, shout it out to me, Shane Ryan here on Twitter. And again, we'll make you famous. Segment break! All right, so our very first guest on Apocalypse Sports Radio is Mark Stevens. Now, some of you may not recognize that name offhand, but when I tell the story, I think you will remember. Mark Stevens is a minority owner of the Golden State Warriors, and last summer, in Game 3 of the NBA Finals, he was sitting courtside when Kyle Lowry came after a loose ball, the Raptors point guard came after a loose ball, and landed basically in his lap. Well, Stevens shoved Lowry and then began shouting at him. It was a really bad look. Uh, the upshot was that he was fined $500,000 and banned for a year. And here was Lowry commenting after that game. Um, as for that fan, there's no place in it for that. You know, he had no reason to touch me. He had no reason to reach over two seats and then say some vulgar language to me. There's no place for people like that in our, in our league. And, um, you know, hopefully he never goes, comes back to an NBA game. So strong words there. Hopefully he never comes back to another NBA game. As I said, he was suspended. Uh, Mark Stevens actually contacted us here at Apocalypse Sports Radio. Um, I'm not going to sit here and pretend we were his first choice. He went to a few outlets, uh, was refused, but we said, yeah, absolutely. We, we would love a guest like that, somebody who was so controversial at the time, uh, and obviously almost here we are a year later, uh, has something to say. So uh, Mark Stevens, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm so excited to uh, talk about my experience and, and what I've learned from it. And I think really, uh, Mark, uh, you're welcome, first of all. And I think really the best way here is just to kind of give you the floor. You obviously have something to say um, about that incident, and um, you you have the space to do it right now. Thank you. Well, first first of all, I, I just want to apologize again to Mr. Lowry. Uh, things got out of control. Uh if I had known that he was the type of guy, you know, where that with a little bit of physical contact, you know, sort of sort of crumbles, right? Or you know, he almost it was, it was sort of sad, right? Watching this sort of grown man have this this you know sort of act in this very fragile way. Of course, I would never have have touched him, and that was a, a misjudgment uh, on my part. Uh, but I've had a, a lot of time. This year has, as you might imagine, not been easy, right? I have not as part of my suspension, been allowed to see this year's uh, Warriors, the, the 2019-2020 Warriors, and what a what a scrappy team. I would have loved to have been courtside to watch those fellows take the floor. But unfortunately, as my punishment dictates, that has not been a refuge for me. I've been mainly just in my billion dollar home just just thinking about my my behavior and it's it's been tough but i've learned a lot and i think i'm a, I'm a better man for it so that there's a lot to uh to unpack there and a lot of interesting things you said but let me start with what Thank you were you. saying i have a book coming out which is something 
something that I did want to bring up at some point. Oh, I, that I didn't know. So you, so you have a, a book? Is it centered yes. around this? This is the beginning of a sort of media tour. <laughs> okay, I didn't realize that. And the book is about the, the mostly about the Lowry incident? No, no, it's not. It's a lot about, uh, well, a lot of people don't know about a lot of parts of my life, that, and they focus on that. But again, that's a few seconds in my life. They don't know about how I, I went to Harvard Business School, right, or how I invested early in Google, right? And then they don't know about uh, the philanthropic work I did, uh, donating millions of dollars to the University of Southern California. And, and my book really focuses on, on those juicy bits of information. So, so is there anything at all about the Kyle Lowry incident in that book? A very brief, uh, there's some, uh, as part of my self-imposed therapy, Afterwards, I, I did some poetry, which is not something, again, that a lot of people know about me. And a lot of the book is, is, is poetry. It's sort of half um, autobiography, half uh, poetry. And uh, there's, a, there's a few poems sort of dedicated uh, to the experience. And, and uh, my editor actually took the title um, from one of those uh, poems, which is uh, Pushing Back. Push, pushing Back. Wow. And so that, that is a reference to Lowry. And that... I do want to. Well, you could take it a, a whole lot of different ways, right? And some people, of course, will take it as a reference to Lowry. Sure. And, and sure. I don't want to explain it. I'm like uh, John Lennon. I don't like to explain, you know, with my uh, my lyrics. That's that's oh boy. Uh, okay, so let me go back. Let's kind of get this on track. Let's go back to you saying that your biggest regret from that incident is that you now perceive Kyle Lowry as weak in some way, and if you had known he was weak in that way, you wouldn't have initiated that physical contact. Is that your chief source of, of regret at the moment? Yeah, it's my chief. That, that was a misjudgment on my part as I looked at him, and I was like, oh, here's a grown man uh, who could deal with uh, some physical contact. Not, not, it's not like I heard him, right? Was, he didn't say I, I heard him. It's the kind of uh, thing that could happen. In, in, in a lot of different normal situations, uh, and I misjudged him. I thought maybe that could be something that that we could do. It could be healthy, you know. Friend, you know, uh, maybe not friends, but yeah, uh, an owner of an organization, a player from another organization, having a physical moment doesn't have to be this big deal. Wow, that, that that's twenty twenty for you, right? Or twenty nineteen, I guess. Well, I'm I'm going to be honest with you. That is a bit of a stunning admission. I I kind of assumed that. You know, somebody comes on after a year after something that you received nothing but negative publicity uh, for this. Oof, oof. Yeah. Yeah, it was bad. Unbelievable. I, I thought you would have more contrition and say something like, I wish I hadn't done it. It doesn't represent me. I regret it. I think it. I, 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 I wish I hadn't done it. Absolutely. Well, the reasons, I think, are a little bit different than what I was expecting. You're saying you wish you hadn't done it because Kyle Lowry was weak and unable to handle it, where... I thought you were going to come on here and say it was it, it reflected poorly on me. It was an ugly thing. Maybe even there was a racial component to it that I shoved Kyle, uh, an NBA player, when he came into the stands. I yes, thought you'd be. I, gosh, I, that has been so upsetful to me that uh, so upsetting to, to hear that people think that there's a racial component. Very so, upsetting. So yeah, your your take is that there's not there's no racial component. Of course, there's not. So this is a classic. You, well, let's persecute the wealthy guy kind of situation. And if it's not this, they're going to find something else, right? They're always looking for these little things. Oh, he did this. He broke some some rule of social interaction. But again, if, if Kyle and myself were in a pickup game in a park and I pushed him, there, well, there wouldn't be a new story because I wouldn't be a billionaire, right? But because I'm sitting courtside and I'm in a beautiful suit, people are upset. 
Now, that is one interesting thing to me is that uh, Kyle Lowry got a lot of praise for this, for the restraint he Oof. showed. Uh, and, you know, Draymond Green had a remark uh, afterward that said players in this situation are vulnerable because you can do something like this to him. But if he retaliated, if he shoved you back or, God forbid, hit you or something like that, he would have been instantly suspended. I would have loved to have seen him try. So you think, my day. you think you would have been able to take Kyle Lowry? Oh, I have. I am when I go to a basketball game. I am armed from eyeballs to toenails. You're you're armed at the game. That's right. I've got uh, these special shoes I wear to games where a little knife blades come out the toes. So if he'd come at me, I don't think he would have uh, come out intact. Let me just say that. Well, this is uh, this is not the interview I expected. Uh, gosh, one of my next questions was: Have you reached out to Kyle Lowry at all? It doesn't sound like. You two have spoken since the incident. Well, I invited him to actually invited him to something that I thought could have been really nice. I thought it could have been something that could have gotten a lot of bad blood out of the way. And I, I, I went at it with the best intentions that uh, basically I own a private island in the Pacific Ocean. And I said, come out there for a week. We'll battle to the death. You and me. And and and. Maybe we'll get a, we'll get to know each other a little bit. We'll talk before the match, and um, it was something I was really excited about. It's something I do every once in a while. Is that I have these sort of death matches on this island, and uh, he didn't even have the. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. He didn't have the balls to respond to the invitation. So you, I, I got a letter from an attorney. If you can believe that. Oof. Now. This is almost too much to believe. You challenged Kyle Lowry to a death match on your private island. Uh, let me ask you this: Speaking of attorneys, do you do you, have you worked with any lawyers since this incident? Oh, have I worked with lawyers? I, it feels like the only person I get to work with. Most, I, I know my lawyer at this point better than my beautiful wife. And your lawyers are, you know, nobody ever advised you to reach out to Kyle Lowry in any other way. I sent him anonymous voicemail messages. From different burner phones. And on that, I'm very curious about. What sort of things would you say to him? Again, I can't get too far into it. Legally, it's a real issue. Even to have brought up that that was me who did it is something that my lawyers who are in the room with me are gesturing problematically. So you, uh, so you have lawyers in the room with you right now? That's right. I'm in a conference room in a building I own. Uh, I don't do this uh, safer-at-home bullshit. So, so you're not social distancing either. No, I think I've made it clear. I don't. I, you know, you don't become two point three billion dollars worth of magic staying home. And do you think uh, throughout this interview, I have to ask, do you think you've come across as likable? Do you, based on the things you've said, that your remorse is kind of like qualified? Uh, that you challenged Kyle Lowry to a, a fight to the death on a private island? Do yes. You, do you feel like you're coming across as likable? Likable is one of the. I, I, it's one of those things where it's obviously subjective, right? Sure I'll, sure. I'll look at a piece of artwork and I'll like it, right? I find that artwork likable. And you'll look at a piece of artwork and you'll find it unlikable, right? I'm, I'm at the country club and another tech billionaire comes up to me, another venture capitalist, and is like, I like you. I like your style. I like how you work. And I thank him. I, you know, so someone like that, he's listening to this and he's cheering, you know, from, from the beautiful home he lives in. Whereas Kyle Lauer or his family or, or other kind of, mm, I'm going to say the term 
sort of punk ass people, they're going to object to it and then they're not going to like it. And then that's not something I have control over. Well, and I, I, I'm trying really hard to give you the benefit of the doubt here, but let me ask you Thank this. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Are you looking for investment? Uh, yeah, actually, I would love to talk to you about that after the interview. Okay. Um, I was in very early on LinkedIn. You, you were? One of the early investors. Okay. Yeah, you've certainly been successful in that regard. Let me ask you, um, you brought up Kyle Lowry and different kinds of people. What do you think are the major differences between somebody like you and somebody like Kyle Lowry? $2.1 billion. That's one difference. I'll throw that out there. Okay, but really, what, you know, what would the differences be? Uh, it's impossible to say. I wake up in the morning, and I'm, and I'm just making successful decisions nonstop till I'm asleep again. So it's just decision after decision after decision. And I don't let fear block my path. And that's something that I think a lot of people do. They let fear block their path. Did Kyle Lowry's fear of me block his path? I think so. I think it got in his head a little bit. It's like, who is this guy? He's tough. And I, I you know, I'm, again, like, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to try to imagine I'm in his head. But if I was to, I'd say he's, he's afraid of me. So you and, think- and, and that fear is probably something that's going to ruin the rest of his life. So you, to put a fine point on it, you think if it came down to you and Kyle Lowry, this is, you're confident that you'd be the one to win. Yes. If, if it's my island, my rules, my weapons, I've never lost. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I'd lost. Ask uh, the seven other guys. Let's, uh, seven guys. Wow, that, that's something. Now, let me ask you this. You are a, um, a minority owner of the Golden State Warriors. Yes. Um, yes, that's right. A minority owner. And look how they're treating me. Oh, now. Right? Doesn't it? It feels like, you know, one day you read this thing, we need more minority owners. Then I come along. And uh, they're, they're trying to kick me out of the building. Now, come on, come on, Mark. You, know, you have to know when they talk about minorities, people wanting more minority representation, they're talking about people of color, women, things like that. They're not talking about... Well, then say that. Well, then say that. Write that headline. But they don't. They say minority, which could be any smaller fraction of a larger group. So you want to claim minority status because you're a minority owner of the, of the team. I do. On, on, several, on several applications, I, I do write down that I am a minority owner because it's the truth. Uh, and, and what about the team reaction? I mean, I, I'm sure somebody like Steve Kerr must have spoken to you. Did you speak with any of the players like, you know, Steph Curry or Draymond that was Green? Hurtful. A lot of that was hurtful because I've been with the team since uh, 2013. And a lot of them I considered really, you know, close personal friends. I would text Steph Curry multiple times every day. And... So the response from, from the, the players and, 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 and from Coach Kerr, that was disappointing. They, they were, I don't know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to make this political, but they approached it from a very, you know, sort of liberal kind of a touchy-feely kind of, oh, you shouldn't do these kind of things kind of mindset. And you said that that hurt your feelings to some degree. That was hurtful that they didn't back yeah. you up more? I, I had a big party. I invited the whole team. Uh, my daughter, it was her 13th birthday. She was so excited. None of them showed up. And how soon was that after the incident? Almost, almost 24 hours later. <laughs> so it was the next Coincidentally. day. It was the next yes. day. And the players didn't come. Yes. Oh, no, that's interesting. They didn't come. 
and it's it's during the finals, which was the official excuse that that I got um, that they were traveling to Toronto. But it was still disappointing to to my sweet baby. And what about Steph Curry specifically? Anything with him? Very difficult. Yeah, tell me, tell us about that, please. Well, it's just when you consider someone your very best friend, and at that point in time, I would say. Steph Curry was probably the, my best friend in the world, and I would imagine I was probably his. <laughs> and so that's tough. So that's you've got a guy like that. We we golfed together once. Um, I was able to get access to his phone numbers, so I I was texting him frequently. I you know game ideas or just like silly stuff. Um, hey, uh, I'm watching Lethal Weapon. Uh, do you remember that movie? Just things I'd think about, and so, so I and I got really close to him um, through these texts I would send to him, and I'd invite him to parties and, and and all sorts of engagements. And sometimes, you know, most of the time he wasn't able to come. And I understand he's got obligations. But when you're when you're best friends with someone, right? On a Friday, you're best friends with a guy, and then on a Monday. He says you're a reprehensible person. That that's gonna cut no matter who you are, no matter how made of steel you think you are. It's gonna hurt. And uh, and you brought up your your beautiful wife before. Um, I have to ask. Oh my gosh! Oh, go Just ahead. Gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. And how did your family react to this? I, I understand you have children as well. What did they when they saw? That's right. Their and dad we probably conceived another one that night. To be honest, is that right? So that was that you're talking oh, about the night what of the a final. Passionate night. Really? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I mean, when your wife sees something like that, she sees, you know, her man, you know, step up to the plate uh, and sort of show himself, you know, in front of a worldwide audience. It's going to make anyone a little hot, you know, under the bloomers. So your wife, not only proud of you, but aroused by you shoving Kyle Lowry. Yes. It was like, kids, see you tomorrow. Daddy and I are going up to the the bedroom. Now your and your name, okay, not that I immediately want to bring your kids up after that anecdote, but your name sort of dragged through the mud after that. What was it like for your kids to see that? Uh, it wasn't easy. Um, the school that we send them to, it's it's a very good school and there's not a lot of other uh, uh, students, but it, it's one of those schools with a sort of like hippy dippy mindset and so a lot of those kids sort of have been indoctrinated into this new leftist sort of uh mindset of oh you know let's all be let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya and so that kind of environment was tough for my kids i raised them to be sharks right i raised them to be little little me's my son's got the same haircut as me it's adorable (laughs) this the sort of swept to the side uh look yeah kind of a classic uh, salt and pepper parted on the side haircut so your child has uh, your son has salt and pepper hair already well, yes artificial but uh, it gives <laughs> him a look a distinguished gentlemanless okay here's what i want to do to close this out uh you despite whatever i may think and people listening may think you came on this podcast okay that takes a certain amount of courage i think thank you I want to give you one last chance here. You know, in the beginning, you talked about your remorse for Kyle Lowry's weakness and all that. Um, if there's one message you wanted people listening to take away, uh, Mark Stevens, what would that be? Uh, well, I think I I stood up for 
the wealthy, right? I, 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 so many times the way, you know, we're living in an age where people love to, you know, beat up on the wealthy. Oh, it's the, all of our problems. Oh, if only they had been less successful, maybe my life would be better. And then I stood up, right? And that's like something that where the places I hang out every day, someone comes up to me, shakes my head. It's like, I want to thank you for pushing that player. Right? People, people as thank a, well, you for as that. Billionaire. I get pushed around all the time and I, I never feel like I can do anything in the back. That was a push for all wealthy white men everywhere. Uh, okay. Uh, Mark Stevens, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Segment break. Wow. That was disgusting in a lot of ways. What a first guest to have at apocalypse sports radio. Let's move away from that as quickly as humanly possible and go into something I am calling the serious segment. So the big news in sports last week was the NFL draft. It started on Thursday night with the first round uh, and went on through the weekend. I did not watch personally. My NFL fandom has ebbed over the last decade or so. I think it got to a point in my life where I said I can't watch football for two days straight on the weekend, and I chose college football over the NFL. However, on Thursday night, I was very much alone in not watching it. More than 15 million people tuned in. It was the highest-rated NFL draft ever, and so it's definitely something that's uh, important in the sports world and something we have to talk about. Luckily, I have two good friends, Miles Cottom and Jacob Weinling, who know much more than I do about the NFL and, in fact, are very smart guys and very into the NFL and have continued their fandom. So I'm going to turn to them now. Uh, Miles is a Panthers fan, but let me start with you, Jake. You're a Broncos fan, so first of all, tell me how your team did in the draft and then maybe give me some thoughts on the draft as a whole. So, yeah, without sounding too much like a homer, the I think the Broncos had one of the best drafts of anybody. Um, you know, they reside in the same division as the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs, who score 40 points every single game. And so <laughs> they basically spent the entire draft building an offense that can try and run with the Chiefs. And so you know, we'll see how it, how it is going forward. But talent-wise, it's it's exciting to be a Bronco fan right now. Um, although I would say the number one takeaway from the draft is what the hell are the Green Bay Packers doing? That they have a Hall of Fame quarterback who is still good. He's not at the peak of his powers, but Aaron Rodgers is still one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And they went to the NFC Championship last year. And they also have one of the best running backs in the NFL in Aaron Jones. So, of course, their first two picks were a quarterback and a running back. I mean, that's that's really, I'd say, if, you're if you were going to turn on ESPN at any point in the next week or so, you're likely to see most people talking about the Green Bay Packers because there's a giant, giant question mark around what the hell they're trying to do right now with Aaron Rodgers. All right, and Miles, you are also out in Colorado. However, you are a Panthers fan. You come from my state, North Carolina, which is actually not my state. I'm from New York, but I live here now. It's complicated. But yeah, what, what were your thoughts on the draft, both with the Panthers and then just general takeaways uh, about what we saw? Sure. So, I, you know, I like what the Panthers did. They're, they're rebuilding. They need some help on defense. They gave up a ton of yards on the ground last year. And so uh, the Panthers became the first team ever to make all seven of their draft selections defensive players. Um, they didn't they didn't draft a single offensive player. So uh, it's interesting in that regard. I mean, there's there's clearly a rebuild going on. They've hired a new coach, Matt Rule, who's specifically uh, kind of set up for these rebuild projects like he did at Temple, like he did at Baylor. Um, and, uh, you know, all the experts and everybody that, that does this for a living have said it's a solid, if not great, draft. So, um, you know, that's uh, it's hard to get excited about a, a bunch of defensive players. There's no 
flashy wide receiver. There's no new quarterback or anything like that. Um, but, you know, if, if that's what they have to do to start the rebuild for the future, then fine. Um, but overall, I think it was really interesting to me this year, the draft as a whole, because it seemed like, at least when looking at the mock draft or analyst viewpoints going in, things were less predictable than usual. Now, I, I think that the NFL draft itself is an exercise that embodies the idea that nobody knows anything ever, <laughs> right? I mean, every year on all sides, it's a largely futile exercise. Uh, think about it. You, you start the year with an impossible number of prospects playing for 800 and something college and junior college teams. You whittle that down to maybe 400 guys by the time you get to the draft, and then you've got 32 different teams making these decisions. And the decisions are made mostly uh, by one, two, maybe three people. Or if you're the Raiders, a provision in Al Davis's will that requires them to draft <laughs> the fastest wide receiver available, <laughs> no matter their skill or need, for all eternity. Henry Ruggs is a bust, folks. But the people who are making these decisions, they're the GM, the head coach, and sometimes the owner. And there are people who are so insular within the NFL that most of them don't pay much attention to college football at all during the year. So trying to predict what these people are going to do when given free reign over this player pool, and they're largely relying on information passed on by a bevy of scouts, you know, it's like trying to predict the lottery numbers or the next brand that Red Hat Twitter will performatively stop buying because they tweeted out something saying racism is bad. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, it was interesting in that regard this year. And what I'm wondering and looking to see going forward is how much of the lack of your traditional pre-draft program affected this year's picks like teams didn't get the whole in-person interview period they didn't do pro days uh and they had to largely rely on scouts tapes scouts uh information and some stuff at the combine so how would that impact this year's picks how did it impact this year's picks that part to me was interesting this year I like the idea that, yeah, instead of a combine, they just had to trust, like, players would submit their own 40 time, and they had to be like, well, <laughs> we have to trust that they're honest. I mean, he set a record, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's got to be good. Right. I mean, you know, you, you, had, uh, you didn't have these sort of character concerns coming out like you always see in the weeks leading up to the draft when teams are trying to throw out smoke screens to protect players they want to draft lower. I mean, you know, uh, one of the, you know, a first-round pick, the Kansas City Chiefs took Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and, uh, you know, his freshman year at LSU, he killed a guy. Uh, and so, you know, that, that didn't come out. And, was, you know, was it on purpose? Fine. Was it on purpose, though? Uh, it wasn't. And, you know, the DAs down there said it was in self-defense and, and it was, you know, that was it. But, you know, that, that kind of thing didn't come out this year. And, uh, you know, is that largely a product of everybody being at home? And so you didn't have reporters with 24-7 access trying to get more stories? Or was it just because... Um, you know, nobody knew what they were doing this year. You know, it's funny, Miles, you talked about um, this idea that nobody knows what they're doing and things are very unpredictable. And Jake, playing off that a little bit, I was thinking, like, I guess my big question is how long would it take to know who really did well in this draft? I think in the NBA, you could say at the nearest, like within like a month of the NBA season starting, you can kind of tell, but certainly by like two seasons, right? Two years, you can say, well, yeah, obviously like this team did the best in the draft or this was the best pick. Uh, what's it like? What's the timeline like in the NFL? Is it longer? Uh, yeah, it's to, at minimum three years, I would say. Um, by the third year, you at least have an idea as to which direction that guy is trending. And, you know, if that guy hasn't made significant improvements by year three, that's always or year four, that's always seen as the Baker break season. Um, so, like, 
the funny thing is we spend all this all this time talking about which players we like and it is informed to some degree because we all like college football and so we formed opinions over the course of the season and then you know come draft time essentially the what, what the combine done does is it talks us out of all of the things that we saw in college football <laughs> it's like well actually if you take the pads off of this guy remove any defenders from from him he's pretty fast <laughs> right right and so like the whole thing is just an exercise in narrative building and bill belichick just like shows up the entire league every year like he made another lopsided trade this year he just always finds the biggest sucker in the room this year was the the los angeles chargers um and like essentially all this is is it's a lottery and belichick understands that his drafts haven't been particularly great throughout history and so effectively all he does is he trades back because that's usually the smart thing to do and you accumulate more picks hence lottery tickets and then you know three years from now you're like oh shit how'd this linebacker from the fifth round fall fall that far oh all these people look dumb it's like no this whole process is dumb yeah and it's, it's funny too because uh like thinking i keep comparing in my head to the nba like the draft is very very important there like you're either the only way to make a good team in the nba is either to grab somebody on free agency when somebody's awesome and finally available or to draft someone like lebron who can completely change your franchise like sure you can slowly build it like pieces and things like that but probably in the nba it doesn't matter if you don't have a superstar you're still not going to win a title ever but in the nfl i would guess and you guys are more informed than me but like miles is it the draft feels like it could be maybe less important than like all the different tinkering that happens uh, with like with everything else, with free agency, with acquisitions and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I wouldn't say that it's not important. I think it is probably the most important way to acquire new talent. Uh, but it's certainly not as important as, you know, in the NBA where you've got uh, sometimes one, two, three, if you're lucky, four or five players that are going to be really good at any given draft. Um, I just think that there's so, so much information out there for these teams. I mean, like I said, you've got, uh, you know, how many folks are there on a college football team? 70, uh, 80, 80 players or something like that. And you've got uh, 800 schools. You, you know, it's it, there's there's so much uh, uncertainty with all of this. But one thing is you almost kind of say um, you can't win your draft uh, you're, you know, you can't win the league via the draft, but you can lose it. Um, you know, I mean, these teams, you've, you've got to nail your first round pick. You, you very rarely can you compete in the NFL without, for example, uh, a star quarterback. And those don't come on the market all that often. Um, you know, and so these these teams that are taking these risks on on number one picks, uh, you know, the Bengals taking Joe Burrow or the especially the Dolphins uh, taking Tua Tagovailoa at five. They've got a hit on that or else their rebuild is going to last two, three more years uh, because, you know, you, you don't get rid of a. I mean, unless you're the uh, Arizona Cardinals, you don't generally give up on a first round pick after one year. Um, so it is, it, you know, it's certainly not as important as the NBA, but it's it is an important uh, way of acquiring new talent, especially uh, because the contracts are there. Right. You you draft these guys and they, they come in on four and five year rookie deals. And the teams that you see in the Super Bowl, the teams you see uh, in the AFC or NFC conference finals are teams that have very good young players on rookie deals. Because once they price out of those, it can be really tough to build a team just in free agency. Yeah, and I would say that, like, as it compares to the NBA, 
the top of the NFL draft, other than quarterbacks, is not as important as the top of the NBA draft because, like, in the NBA draft, it's so clear who are are the best players in that draft. Like, it's very rare that you get, like, a second-round pick or a late first-round pick that's the best player out of, out of that draft. Usually you're going to get it in the lottery. Um, and so in the NFL, you know, it's a lot more spread out, and certain positions don't tend to hit free agency. So, like, quarterback is at the top of the list. That's why everybody's always reaching for quarterbacks. The three of the first six picks this year were, were quarterbacks. Like, you don't exist in the NFL if you don't have a quarterback. Uh, same goes for, like, left tackles. You don't really find a whole lot of those on the free agent market, and so you have to draft those. But there's a lot of other positions where, you know, you can sign guys up off the off the scrap heap because one of the things, you know, that football has that I, I don't think you see to the same degree in other sports is how scheme-specific certain players are. So, like, the oh, perfect right. example right. I always use is DeMarcus Ware, who is a Hall of Fame outside linebacker and a 3-4 defense in Dallas for years. And so he came over to Denver, and they made him a 4-3 defensive end. So he's still passing the rusher, but he's in a different – or rushing the passer. He's just in a different scheme. And he his production basically got cut in half, changing from the scheme. One year later, he goes back to 3-4 outside linebacker, and he's the Hall of Fame, Famer again. And so there's a lot more, like, bargain bin type stuff that you can get in the NBA or in the NFL that you don't see in other leagues. And that's essentially what Belichick has been doing to make the Patriots such a dynasty. Well, so, Jake, yeah, speaking of Belichick, and uh, I know you're a huge Tom Brady fan, and so I'm sure you were <laughs> very disappointed to see he's leaving. But I saw a quote about Belichick not having selected and the Patriots not having selected a quarterback and I think the quote was, it was not by design or something like that. And it almost sounded like he was slyly admitting that things had gone poorly and that they did want a quarterback and they didn't manage to do it. Am I reading that right? Or how big a deal is it that they didn't, they didn't get the, uh, a quarterback at all? Uh, so you could be reading into it. Like you, you, I mean, you could be accurate a little bit. So this starts with Baker Mayfield's uh, draft, who was the number one overall pick for Cleveland a couple of years ago. And he said that he was told by his agent that if Cleveland didn't pick him at one, New England was going to trade up to try to get him at two. And so if that is true, he's been they've been looking for a young quarterback for at least, you know, two years. And so there were reports that they were interested in to attack of because before, you know, he dislocated his hip, he was considered to be the number one overall pick this year. Um, and so that might be the, the quarterback to Belichick might've been hinting that, that they were trying to get up to get Tua, but the, they just couldn't trade up ahead of the dolphins. Got it. Got it. And now miles, I have to ask this before we get into some broader topics. Uh, I have it on very good authority from a source who is my Uncle Jim, who lives in New Jersey, that both the Jets and the Giants actually had decent drafts uh, this year. Is that true? Wishful thinking on his part, or did they do okay? Who are the Jets? <laughs> uh, uh, New York, no, I, New York yeah, football both teams team. out of New York uh, did what they needed to do. Uh, they both used their first selection on an offensive lineman. Um, uh, you know, and I think they're, they're trying to protect their young quarterbacks. I, now, whether or not uh, Sam Darnold and Daniel Jones are ultimately a quarterback of the caliber that can get you to where the, you know, where the Chiefs or the Ravens or some of these competitive teams are, um, I think the answer to that remains to be seen or is probably just no. But uh, they've done what they have to to try to protect these guys. Um, the beauty of drafting an offensive tackle, uh, especially a good one like um, Andrew Thomas or Makai Becton, uh, these guys will be around for a little while. And, you know, if you miss on the quarterback, you've still got a great offensive line there to build around. And I think uh, teams and fans specifically sometimes seem to 
underrate the impact of having a great offensive line. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that can really, I mean, that can make all of your offensive players better, right? It opens up holes for your running backs. It gives your quarterbacks time to find receivers. It gives your receivers time to get open. And so, um, you know, seeing some teams address the offensive line the way that the Jets and the Giants did, it's actually impressive for once. It is because it's it's not the sexy front page news like there's, you're not going to see a even if they had the number one overall pick and there was this like generational left tackle that, that, that you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. everybody said you you should take and they took it it's still probably not front page news because left tackles aren't sexy even though you know they're literally the pillars of a football team. The only offensive lineman I can remember in my life where it was a big deal that he was really great in college and was going to be drafted really high was Orlando Pace. Um, <laughs> And I have no idea what happened to him. I, I assume he had a pretty good career. Is he still playing? Like, he actually, he makes, uh, yeah, he, he makes salsa now. Oh, <laughs> oh the Pace Salsa Company. That's what <laughs> he did. Nice. <laughs> no, but yeah, that's the only time I can remember, like, what Jake, to use your term, like a sexy offensive lineman. There's, there's not literally not one other name as a casual fan that I could, like, dredge up from my memory. There was the only other one I can think of, Quentin Nelson from Notre Dame. Uh, I think it was what, two years ago. The Colts drafted him. Typically, you don't see guards go like even in the first round, let alone in, in the top ten. And I think he was either like the fifth or sixth overall pick because they were just like, this guy is already one of the best guards in the NFL. And did he? Was he good? Yeah, he's wrecking the league right now. He had a, he had a viral video last year because apparently he like screams and smiles when he's m- mowing people over, and so he's he's a lot of fun to watch. I like that because it's funny they call him the offense, but offensive line is such a defensive position, really, and the defenders are the ones you always think like get to be aggressive and crazy and have face paint and scream and yell. So it's nice to see that like someone on the mm-hmm. offensive line is kind of like adopting that like badass mentality. Uh, let me yeah. ask you guys. Let me ask you guys just about the. The TV production itself of the draft, was it good? Was it fun to watch? How insufferable was Roger Goodell? I mean, Miles, if you want to start, was this something that, like, I know you're probably going to be fascinated by the draft no matter what, but within those parameters, was this, quote-unquote, a good one? Did the NFL do a good job? Personally, I didn't love it. I think there was a lot of filler. Uh, It took a long time. I mean, it was almost four and a half hours on Thursday night for the first round alone. And I get that if you just do the math with 32 teams at eight minutes a pick, it comes out to about that long. But there were numerous times where, the, you know, you'd get the little ticker information on the bottom that the pick is in, and they'd cut to commercial and then come back to the five talking heads going back and forth about something. And it was another five or ten minutes before they'd announce the pick. And my thought is, uh, you know, when you've got – when you're live, right, when you're in a venue – You've got things uh, very tightly scheduled. You're running a tight ship, and everything's happening on eight-minute intervals. And, and sure, it's going to take maybe the same amount of time. But being at home and without them having these sort of uh, logistics to or hoops to jump through, it did seem like it just drug on forever. Jake, you agree with that? Yeah, although I would say that like generally that – how drafts tend to go like i i kind of hate the first round because like miles said like there's so much time in between picks it took four and a half hours i like i'm on record that day two is the best day of the draft because the second and third rounds are still vitally important picks it's still a pool of players that that you're familiar with and it moves at light speed compared to the the first round i mean it still takes forever and the, the broadcast this year it was clunky um i mean i think the best part of broadcast was just the natural uh, 
uh, places that all the all these coaches were drafting from, and so you got to see, you know, like Bill Belichick showed some personality that they would cut to his kitchen when he was making a draft pick. He had his dog sitting in the chair. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that on screen. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like stuff like that was was kind of cute and charming. But yeah, like Miles said, there's a long slog in between like the moments that that were kind of funny. Although no, I will say that like on the Goodell scale, yeah, he was, was gonna relatively human throughout the draft. I mean, like as much as a Android created by billionaires to maximize profit can be, but like <laughs> there were some moments where he made me chuckle. Wow, that is Roger Goodell, interesting. Now, Miles also brought up one thing that I thought of. One thing that kills me, absolutely kills me when I'm watching anything on like on TV, sports on TV. I always usually have Twitter open, tweet deck, and it seems like the reporters or the journalists who are there are for some reason wanting to tweet out immediately when something happens. So I'll be watching like the end of a basketball game and I'll be so pissed off because right as the ball's being inbounded, they'll tell me like, Oh yeah, Duke just won on a last second shot. And I'm like, ah, oh, I, I know I shouldn't be looking, but like the spoiler kills me. And this seems to be like a big thing in the draft. Like there's this weird race by like the inside guys, like whatever, whoever the big journalists are, like they're always trying to tweet out the picks before you see or hear them on TV. It strikes me as insanely pointless, but I wanted to get both of your perspectives on that. Is it as annoying as it looks to me, like, as an outsider, or is that, like, good in some way when you're like, oh, okay, two seconds before Goodell's at the podium, I know who they're going to draft? You, well, you know, oh, yeah, go ahead, Jake. I would say, like, if you want to spare yourself the drudgery of the draft, following it on Twitter is pro and doing other things is probably the most entertaining way to follow the draft. So, like, in that sense, if you're not watching it on, on TV, like I do see them providing a service, but like the vast majority of people who care about this are watching it on TV anyway. And, you know, the casual fans are going to check in after the draft to see if there's any names they recognize for their team. And so like, it just, it seems so incredibly petty. My favorite moment from the draft <laughs> though, actually was uh, Shams Cheriana, the NBA, the NBA insider who's always dealing with uh, Woj for all, for all the scoops. Um, he just decided to come right out and said, like in a tweet, he's like, "Because I'm bored, the Miami Dolphins are taking two a fifth overall." <laughs> <laughs> that had to piss off the football guys so much. That's hilarious. I mean, it must have. It was it was a pretty good flex. I do have to give him credit for that. <laughs> Um, and then let me ask you this, too. This is just something I'm curious about. Does anybody, like, on the uh, front office side or the coaching side actually care how somebody does on the Wonderlick test? Probably not. <laughs> I, I think that they probably do only because they're told that it matters. And, you know, these guys, like I said, these guys are deeply weird insular people and they don't know what's on the wonderlick test but they're saying but you know somebody says oh the wonderlick test here are these scores if these guys can rank and categorize these players in any metric they're going to do it and so you know it matters only in that they've been told that it matters uh but because they've been told it matters thus it matters so I heard uh, a story recently that uh, I won't say the organization, but a very prominent governing body of a big sport in America, that if somebody is being considered for a high-level executive position, they actually send them to a psychiatrist in Atlanta. And the idea behind it is not to determine if they're crazy or whatever, but it's to make sure that they're conformists. It's like to make sure that they are not <laughs> like free thinkers really in any way, that they're complete team players. And it, it was like very disturbing to learn about for me. But thinking about the Wonderlick, I'm like, Knowing what I know about the NFL and like how they are 
petrified of people like Colin Kaepernick or whoever, I would think like a high score would be more worrisome to them than a low score. Uh, does that does that like is that true? Like, do you guys think that's true? Because see, like we definitely don't want somebody who got a fifty on our team because they're just going to be like too smart, too smart to, for this whole thing. So yeah, they definitely don't want independent thinkers. Like any anything that measures that, that you know, if you're thinking about yourself before the team, that is not what the the NFL as a as a culture values. Um, but there is like this weird, I guess the word I would use is responsibility that they're trying to measure through that Wonderlick test because like Miles said, these are deeply weird humans who are <laughs> isolated from like most of society. And so they're not able to like use normal like human intuition to figure out if a person is a piece of shit or not. <laughs> and so like there, there's basically a test case of this going on right now in the NFL with my beloved Denver Broncos that after Peyton Manning rode off into the sunset, the Broncos were wandering through the wasteland for years because their drafts were shitty. And essentially they were drafting for potential. They were like, you know, which my favorite quote about potential is that just means you suck right now. <laughs> and so, and so shocker, most of these players ended up sucking. And so the Broncos two years ago changed their draft strategy to draft players who were actually good in college. And they try and stress like team captains and academic All-Americans, like every other player they, they draft is one of those now. And in like two years, they've kind of turned the team around. So like they're trying to get, again, responsibility is the word that I would land on. But I don't know if that's what like most NFL teams are trying to measure with the Wonderlick test and all that other stuff. Jake, that reminds me of, uh, I, I've spoken to a lot of college golf coaches, and I can't remember who told me this, but I think it was the coach, Buddy Alexander, who used to coach the Florida golf team, and he would constantly have parents of kids who were either marginal or were definitely not going to get a scholarship to Florida. They would tell him, yeah, but my kid's going to work so hard and he's going to improve. And he would be like, yeah, but what about the kids who are already good? You don't think they're <laughs> going to improve? Like, you don't think they're also going <laughs> to? That's exactly it. Like, potential. It's, it just means, like, you're not good now. And, and there's no guarantees beyond that. Um, Miles, any, uh, any thoughts on that particular uh, facet of things? Well, I, I think just going back to the Wonderlick test, I think probably the best use of it is the one that they haven't started doing yet. Uh, you know, the Wonderlick test would be a perfect baseline test for how much the NFL is ruining these players' brains over the course of their career. <laughs> a new Wonderlick wonder every year. You take it at the end, uh, and then you can see just how much – uh, quantifiably, they have they have ruined these people. But here's what happened, Miles. What they would do is they would do it every year, and the players who didn't decrease enough, the coaches would be like, you're not giving your body enough. You're not working hard enough for the game. It would just be used as a measure of who's not, like, getting enough hits <laughs> on the head. I feel like that would be, like, the ultimate cynical NFL <laughs> use of it. All right, so uh, let's talk about the big question about being an NFL fan. And it's, I don't know, it might be a boring question at this, at this point, but I'm someone who kind of faded away from the game before anything political hit. Like, by the time Kaepernick did his thing, I was already sort of just not watching NFL for whatever reasons, just the natural way fandom changes over time. But you guys have always been huge NFL fans, much bigger fans than I am. What's it like now that... I don't know. It's I don't even know where to start with like the politics of the NFL or the the sort of like rabid, weird like Yahoo fan base that you associate with them in the worst case. What's it like being like a smart football fans who really analyze and it's and it is a beautiful game and it's a it's a game that requires so much ingenuity and strategy and brilliance. Uh, but there's this flip side to it too. So maybe Jake, if you could start like 
Is there a cognitive dissonance in your head being like, I love this game and I love this league, but Jesus Christ, it looks, <laughs> it's so bad in so many ways. Oh yeah, definitely. So like to give a little background on my intro into the league, like I grew up in Denver, which basically means that you get brainwashed into becoming a Denver Broncos fan. We are completely fucking psychotic here. Like I cannot <laughs> overstate it enough. We we lose grip with reality when it comes to the Denver Broncos. Like we, whoever the Denver Broncos quarterback is, is instantly the most famous person in the state, no matter what. And so like, you can't not be into the NFL when you grow up here. And so like going into it that way, where it's like a, a sense of community, like that's essentially why we like sports. Right. And so that made, you know, gives me kind of the warm and fuzzy feelings about about the NFL, thinking about how much I love Denver and how, you know, all these other normal football fans in my life, you know, how many how many moments we've shared over them. But what has always given me this cognitive dissonance with the NFL is going to NFL games, no matter where I go, <laughs> it is like. I don't know whether they attract the worst human beings in the world or if they just tend to bring out the worst in human beings. But like, I really have no interest in going to NFL games unless it's a playoff game. And, and like, I watch basically eight hours of football every Sunday and like for absolutely no money. Could you ever pay me to go back to uh, Foxborough in, in New England? That is the absolute worst fan experience I have ever had. You could pay me a million dollars and I'd really have to think about it. See, I, I, so, I despise like Boston fans in general, <laughs> just the way they behave <laughs> and the way they are. So you have to tell that story uh, of what you've told me before, but I think people would like to know. Uh, yeah. What happened at Foxborough? So uh, my first and only time to Foxborough for a Patriots game came the year after the Broncos became the first team to beat Brady and Belichick in the in the playoffs. They were like 10 and 0 by that point, and they had come come to Denver and we beat the shit out of them because that's what we always do. Um, <laughs> and so they had a rematch. It was like week three, week four. It was early in the season um, the following year in New England. And so me and my buddy who is also a Broncos fan from Denver, went and we were accompanied by my girlfriend who was wearing a Teddy Bruschi jersey and my other friend who is a diehard Patriots fan. And so we're sitting in the lower level, not you know, not the, the stereotypical Yahoos in the cheap seats. This is, this is level 100. Um, and so <laughs> the, uh, at one point, uh, there was a big play that, that happens and there was a woman behind us who dumps an entire beer on my girlfriend. Oh, my God. Mind you, I'm wearing an old school Broncos jersey, the bright orange thing. Like I'm literally wearing a target on my back for this entire <laughs> fan base to take shots at me. But they didn't. They took shots at my girlfriend the entire game. And so finally, at one point in the third quarter, I snapped and just turned around. I was like, why are you guys all messing with her? They said, well, she brought you here. <laughs> So, yeah, that's my intro. So the Broncos take the lead and like things just get increasingly more dire. And like me and my buddy are genuinely fearful for our safety at this point, just given the entire shit show that is enveloping us. And so uh, the Patriots had like one, la you know, one of those one last gas drives and Brady missed on, on a fourth down. And so as the Patriots are jogging off the field, one guy like 10 rows in front of me stands up and says, you suck, Brady. And the guy in the same row, like 15 seats over on the opposite side, stands up. He says, you don't fucking talk that way about Brady. And then they came to blows. And we left shortly after that. Because it's like, that is that is objectively the funniest thing I've ever seen at a sporting event. But also, like, one of the scariest things. Because if that's what they're doing to, the, to each other, what the hell is going to happen to us? Yeah. I uh, And it's so, I forgot the line about, she brought you here. If, not, if It's such a perfect illustration 
of the tribalism. Like, look, it's not the yeah, like you said, not the guy with the target on his back, the big orange target. <laughs> it's the it's the traitor. It's the traitor in our midst. It, which is just right. like how you know, like it. I think there was like a radio program a while back that showed people talking about Tom Brady and Gronkowski and just like laying into them in Boston. Like these heroes are theirs. Like the minute you leave, you're like scum. You're dirt. Like, uh, what, a, what a wild thing. All right, Miles, that's a, that's a tough one to top. But uh, yeah, same question for you. Like that, that idea, like is there cognitive dissonance? Uh, is it weird being an NFL fan in 2020? I, there absolutely is. And really cognitive dissonance is the only way I can describe it. Um, it's tough because you see what the league does to these guys and you see how it treats them after the fact. Um, and then you've got to reconcile that with the fact that I'm going to sit down every Sunday and watch these games. And I've got a team that I root for, obviously. Um, uh, you know, it's a little bit tougher now that I'm, I'm you know, two time zones away. But uh, I, it's even kind of made my fandom a little bit stronger, at least until this year. But, uh, you know, more than that, there's so many different ways to consume the NFL now between fantasy football, daily fantasy, standard sports gambling, which is becoming, you know, legal and common all across the country. And so you've got uh, so many different ways now to uh, take in football and, and sort of live that, uh, you know, on that that lifestyle where you're looking at what, you know, what are the scores? What are the players doing today? What are the teams doing and making these moves? And so it's it's interesting in that regard because you, you try to reconcile it with just the, um, you know, the, the deadly aspect of the game and the aspect of the game that blackballs guys like Colin Kaepernick for having the, the gall to speak out against racial injustice. And, you know, that part sucks. But, um, you know, I think generally it's one of those things where I, I put it aside just because I enjoy – the other aspects of it. And so, so you're right. It's, it's simply a cognitive dissonance. And, uh, you know, all I've wanted for the last two or three years is the Panthers to just be absolutely God awful forever. And I don't have to worry about it anymore. I get my Sundays <laughs> back. I get to go up into the mountains and, uh, you know, have a, a full long weekend, but, um, you know, that's, that's not the case right now. And I can't quite quit the NFL. All right, so Miles, I, I thought Spike and I held the crown as like the people who came up with the weirdest, uh, most complicated sports pools. Uh, but then you came along, and I think you're the new king uh, with some of the ones you came up with. But you guys did, uh, you conceived of, and I know Jake, you participated in an NFL draft pool. Uh, how did that go? I'm curious how that went. It was interesting. Um, I got everything wrong. Like I literally got everything wrong. Everybody knew the first two picks in the draft going in, and I got I got nothing else after those two. And that's why it was interesting. And that's what really prompted my uh, question at the start of this about, you know, does anybody know anything ever? Because the very best, uh, you know, the winner of our pool correctly selected the draft position of 12 players. And, mm. you know, that's just barely over a third. Um, and, you know, the, the second best person was at eight, uh, you know, less than 25% right there. And so, um, it was fun. It kept me entertained. Honestly, that's what kept me watching. Uh, had I not uh, had that pool going on, I'd probably cut it off after the seventh, eighth, or ninth pick. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting to have something sports-related uh, in this, this time where everybody's, you know, staying at home, staying safe, and there's just nothing else going on. And I think that's also, you know, that attributed to the ratings of the draft. All right, well, I think that's the perfect place to end. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, I am very ignorant about this stuff, and you guys are very bright. So thank you for uh, informing our audience in a way that I could never hope to. <laughs> thank you, Shane. Thanks, Shane.
movement. Break! All right, last order of business for today's show. Um, when I made my Patreon last week, I sent it out to a few people I knew. Uh, again, like I said, $3 a month, but one person came through and decided that he was going to donate $6,000 a month. Uh, this was stunning to me. It immediately, with one donation, exceeded anything I thought I would get um, total. And so, you know, obviously I was very, very thrilled with it. Um, but, of course, there were strings attached. I heard from this person and said, you know, this money doesn't come for free. What I want is I want to come on your podcast every week, and I want to have the freedom to, to give a sports take. And, you know, to me, that sounded pretty reasonable for the amount of money he was like $6,000 a month. Are you kidding? Of course, you know, you're paying my entire salary. Come on. Um, then he sent me some of his ideas via email. And, you know, they're not great. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. They're not great. Some of them were uh, a little worrisome when I read them in different ways. And so I, I was hesitant whether or not to kind of acquiesce to his demand. But... In the end, I mean, money talks. I need this money. And so this man's name is Spike Friedman, and I am going to let him come on. Uh, rule is I'm allowed to challenge his take, but I do have to let him give it. So uh, without further ado, uh, Spike, welcome. Hi, Shane. Coming at you live from the Spike Yacht. How's it going? International waters. Okay. Uh, it's going well. Um, I've explained uh, to the people listening the our deal that you're going to come on here and offer your sports take. So everybody's caught up, and I think we're all eager to hear uh, what you've got for us. Yeah, well, great. First of all, I just want to thank all of you on shore for practicing social distancing. I'm making sure my whole crew does that when they go to pick up provisions at whatever port we're by. Most recently, uh, we were on a little island off of Thailand. We wiped them out of rice and flour, but we did it at a six-foot distance. So you're welcome, people of Thailand. Shane, have you been aware of the NFL draft? You, you know, we just ran a segment on it. So, yeah, I did not watch oh. it, but we just talked about it. Well, okay, great. So you're aware that in the NFL every year they pick players and they assign them to teams. For me, that's great. I love that. I wish in my various businesses and enterprises they'd let me just pick employees and assign them to teams and then they'd have to do that for five years. They don't let us do that in – various forms of corporate arbitrage vis-a-vis -vis <laughs> sports goods sales. It turns out, it, look, I'm not the dick from Dick Sporting Goods, but, okay. you know, hypothetically, if I were, I wouldn't be able to do that. But I don't know if you were watching coverage of the NFL draft on ESPN or the NFL Network or any of the cable channels that you can't afford and I can. But if you were watching, you probably noticed that every time they drafted someone, they'd be like, well, this guy played four years at Syracuse. He runs this fast. And also his father spent seven years in prison and he's overcoming the odds. Every story, it was more and more egregious cases of this guy overcoming the odds, that guy overcoming the odds. And let me tell you, Shane, frankly, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of hearing about these players whose mother passed away tragically when they were a blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear about the players overcoming the odds. I want to hear about the owners overcoming the odds. And let me tell you, I got stories galore. Did you know Mike Brown, owner of the Cincinnati Bengals, once lost $600,000 on a hand of blackjack because he thought jacks were worth thirteen? 
True fact. I saw it happen on a riverboat. And I'm not going to tell you which river, but it rhymes with the Blamazon. Okay. All right. Alex Spanos, owner of the San Diego Chargers, electrocuted himself when he was trying to design a new logo from scratch. Almost died, lost the use of half of one of his testicles. Now, that's a story of overcoming the odds. He still owns a sports team with one and a half testicles. Why aren't we hearing about that during the NFL draft? Ralph Wilson, owner of the Buffalo Bills, had to go to Canada because Buffalo's so poor. Now, that is overcoming the odds. You're going to tell me about some player whose dad got shot and lost his sister? I don't care. Tell me about William Clay Ford Sr. being abused by Henry Ford III. I want to hear about how Bill Bidwell lost a finger in a poker game in Atlantic City because he thought that four jacks was better than four queens because he's a misogynist. That, to me, is a heartbreaking and relatable story about Bill Bidwell, owner of the Arizona Cardinals. Or hypothetically, when Ziggy Wilf, owner of the Minnesota Vikings, drafts a wide receiver at the end of the first round. Pretty good pick, if you ask me. Look, I'm not a big sport guy, but it's a pretty good pick. I don't want to hear about how the wide receiver, you know, like lost a toe and learned how to rerun by, you know, being inspired by, I don't know who some troop or something. I want to hear about how Ziggy Wilf overcame the odds of having his wife walk in on him, having sex with four different prostitutes, each of a different race and gender at the same time. and managed to avoid having his prenup get invalidated to me. That's overcoming the odds. That is a relatable story about a man at the NFL draft doing something great, being able to draft a wide receiver and keep all of his money, despite the horrific divorce proceeding that came from the multitude of prostitutes that this one incredibly wealthy man hired. All right. So for me, that's what we need to do. We need to get ESPN, the NFL Network, the other cable channels that you poor people don't even get to watch. We need to get them to redo their stories so that when the Denver Broncos take some, like, kid out of, I don't know, uh, Arizona State who lost both his eyes in a tragic tiger muffling, boo-hoo, who cares? I want them instead to tell me about Pat Boland managed to avoid, you know, getting jail time, quote unquote, or disemboweling, quote unquote, you know, some random stranger who happened to look at him on the street with the eyes of a non-millionaire. Pat Boland's <laughs> overcoming the odds, not some kid out of Arizona State. That's what's relatable to me, a regular everyday Joe sports fan. And I assume that's what's relatable to the rest of the world. And I need people to know that and hear that. Thank you, Sheen, for letting me on your podcast. I assume this is going out wide. Lots of people. Well, yeah, like I said to anybody listening, uh, you know, Spike has paid for the privilege of offering his takes like this. I don't agree with what he just said. I find a lot of it horrifying. You don't have to agree, but we do have to run it. That's just the way it goes. Well, Spike, you would have liked uh, um, Mark Stevens was on earlier. He's the one who shoved Kyle Lowry. Oh, Mark Stevens, persecute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he's a, I mean, look, he's not a, he's not a primary owner. 
that's the thing you got to remember about a guy like Mark Steven. Sure. Secondary sure. owner. Yeah. Yeah, he's a minority owner, and he, in fact, was upset that nobody was recognizing his we don't, minority we don't, status. Yeah, we don't say minority owner in my circles. I don't know what Mark's about. We call them secondary owners because they're poor. Okay. Got it. Well, Spike, thank you so much for this. Uh, anything, anything you want to sign off with before we, uh, before we call it quits? Yeah, I'd like to plug my uh, independent small business, hoping to get some of these big government loans. It's, uh, it's called uh, Accenture. It's an it's a it's a consulting and accounting firm, Accenture. Hoping we get some small business loans. If you or are if you're friends with Steve Mnuchin, he just lost my no. I don't know what that's all about. I helped him on Suicide Squad. I gave him half the ideas. So I don't know what the deal is. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. If anybody has Steve Mnuchin's uh, contacts, please relay it to me. I can get it to Spike. Spike, thank you very much, and please stay safe on your yacht. Oh, uh, we are extremely safe. Almost too safe. Segment break. Wow, we had a rogues gallery of guests on today's podcast. I want to thank Brandon Gardner. Uh, I want to thank Spike Friedman, Miles Cottom, Jake Weinling. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on, and thank you all for listening. Uh, this was the first episode of Apocalypse Sports Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. We're just going to keep getting better. You know that's true. And like I said, you know this plus the Apocalypse Sports Dispatch, which is five. Uh, blogs a week every morning we'll be writing something Uh, that's three dollars a month i think it's a pretty good deal so if you're into it grab it jump on it uh tell a friend spread it to your friends and families pretty soon you'll be able to listen to this podcast on all the usual places and i think that's about all i have so thank you so much have a great night and uh god bless you bye bye Would it be okay if I chose this moment to speak directly to my best friend, Steph Curry? Okay, Steph, I love you. And I'm sorry if I've done something to upset you. That was not my intention. You are my best friend. I live for you. I breathe for you. I want to grow old with you. But you're making that very hard by not responding to my text messages or my emails or my invitations to socialize. I love you.